0: empower and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome everybody back to the show. So in this episode, we're going to explore what it means to have a body and the power of touch. My guest today is Steve. Welcome to the show.
1: Uh, Thank you. Great to be invited.
0: Yeah. So I would love to hear a little bit more about you before we kind of dive into this topic. So tell us a little bit about you.
1: Yeah, I'm a body worker. That's a really powerful identity for me. I help people with anxiety, pain, suffering by connecting to the body. My route into that was as I was a failed um, systems engineer, failed banker, and started working with people with mental health problems. That was really radical for me. I did that for eight years. But the notion that mental health is important, but also that mental health is much more than talking treatments or taking medication. Around that time, I got into yoga and it was like a kid, in a kid in a sweet shop, really. All these cool bodied ways, embodied ways of working that changed the experience of what I saw as classic mental health issues. And that's been my journey. A lot of my core friends from that time are psychiatrists now or psychotherapists or psychologists. And I did the bodywork route, just helping people to relieve suffering, shall we say, through embodiment. Uh, and I do that through touch, shaking, movements, and craniosacral psychotherapy.
0: Oh, that's that's really really interesting. And you know, as you said, shaking. I was like, ooh, I use that too. So I'm I'm really, uh, you know, keen. When I hear things, I'm like, oh, that's so exciting. Um, so let's talk about the first part, which is like what it means to have a body. And I, and 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 people are gonna be like, that seems like a really silly thing to talk about. Like, what do you mean? I mean, of course I have a body. So, you know, I'm curious about what does that mean to you when you say like, oh, what does it mean to have like a body? And then like, how do we know we have a body?
1: Yeah, all of that. It's just, For me, it's deeply fascinating. So there's some really old philosophical problems about how minds and bodies interact. So famously, Descartes has been very influential in Western thought, I think, therefore I am. And this is still seen as the gold standard, really, in many traditions, that there is a mind, the mind's the highest achievement, and this is what we should be privileging, and it gets tied in with notions of a soul. What is in this framework a mechanical, dirty, full of desire, things need to be regulated? That doesn't really fit for me. So, <clears throat> so yeah, that's one strand. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I work from the paradigm that... Uh, I interact, therefore I am, I have a body, therefore I am. And that shifts the territory quite radically. And it particularly shifts in terms of um, how can we relate to mental health? Is the body important in the process of cognition and thinking and feeling and emotion? Well, absolutely, I would argue yes. But you can only do that if you have good philosophy or you sort of embrace the body as a huge part of personhood. So uh, one of the ways that I try and solve mind-body issues when I'm talking with clients and in my own framework is um, to always focus on a person. I'm not mental Steve, emotional Steve, physical Steve, spiritual Steve. I'm Steve, trying to do the best I can to negotiate the world. And all bits of me are equally valid. Uh, and to really appreciate that the tools, the antennae, the modes that I engage with the world really determine how I experience the world. Is really, really important. My body's not casual. It's actually determinative of how I experience. You know, a bat can negotiate the world with sound in the middle of the night and do amazing instances. The world is very, very different for a bat because of its modes of engagement, its antennae, its skills, its sensitivities determines experience in a radical way. And this is true for humans. What's happening inside of us, our skills of paying attention, the ways that we act, we move, are deeply, deeply formative of how we um, how we live, our health. We are incredibly dependent on the context around us. So for me, a body is not a thing, the Cartesian machine, a body is a process, a process formed by engaging with the world. And um, that's very exciting. We're recreating our sense of our body. Our body is very dependent on our context. So I'm Steve as a husband, Steve as a someone who wants to run and can't run enough. I'm Steve as a clinician. I'm Steve as uh, I occupy my body in different ways at different times. And they're all how I engage with those things means I have a different body at different times, a different process. And I think that's very, very exciting. So. Bodies aren't machines. Bodies are processes. Bodies are continually being recreated and are deeply dependent on the context and the actions and gestures and people actually that we're interacting with. How does that sound?
0: Oh, I, I'm sitting here just like, as soon as you said the body is a process, I was like, oh man, that is like, that is a really great way of putting it. I mean, as you're speaking in my mind, you know. From a less philosophical, but more like polyvagal theory, for me, it's like, oh, there's a continual process of so, like how we engage um, our, our physiology. So when you say like context, well, what's happening in my physiology? If I'm scared, right? If I'm feeling um, a sense of fear or worry, uh, I'm going to see things differently. I'm going to think differently, and so that is influenced by my body. And so, and then I think the con uh, the concept of neuroception, right? So neuroception being that my body I have these receptors that detect, am I safe? Am I in danger? Is my life in threat in an environment? And it's an entirely uh, subconscious process, right? It's not in the thinking mind that my body is detecting these cues. It's in its process, the way that it processes information that helps alert my cognition. Hey, I think you need to pay attention here. Or, you know, so it's, it's a bi-directional piece for me that I had. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, actually, if we think of the vagus nerve, it's 80% up 20% down, right. That our physiology, our body is actually Putting eighty percent of the information up to the mind and influencing the mind, and the mind is about twenty percent coming down. So it's very just, nice. It's so. If,
1: go ahead. If we're continually recreating our body in the present moment. It's like, where's the information coming from? So absolutely, you've identified the vagus nerve as this huge sensory driver of of. What's safe? So if my heart is beating and my belly is churning and my throat is tight, then I'm more cautious or more limited or I've got less bandwidth. If I can't connect to myself and that can't be safe, I have less availability to appreciate nuance and differentiate what's going around me. I'm disconnected from myself and I can't connect to nature, world, otherness, other people, other things. But there are also other streams of information. Uh, So the vagus is really, really important. But also just the size, shape, weight, structure of our body, just the very fact that I can move and engage, I have agency. So a moving body as well as a digestive organ sensing feeling. We also have a whole ton of information from the head. So the trigeminal nerve, most there's many, many strands saying Vegas, Vegas, or you know, welcome to Vegas, baby. You know, it's really amazing the Vegas. And I really get that. But the trigeminal nerve is not far behind in its sort of um processing information power. We have huge amounts of information through our vagus. So yeah, all the streams of that we feel inside our body, as clinicians, let's get good at supporting all of those. And also we have to deal with our histories and our context and all our memory circuits. So it's all filtered by the concepts we're applying to what we think. And then we've got to deal with all this information stream from the outside. So who I am is a sum of this flows of information including the vagus from the body, flows from the outside and all contextualized and shaped by our predictions and constructs. And that's a lot to make sense of, but it just tells us all these streams of information are important.
0: Mm.
1: Not just what's happening inside my body determines my sense of self, but what's happening around me and what I believe or have predicted or have learned is going to happen, all three strands. And for clinicians, body workers, we need to engage with all three of them: what you believe about pain, what's the fear responses in your body around pain, and actually the actual tissue state is not irrelevant here. All those themes. We need to be good at supporting all levels of those. Uh, body as a process.
0: Yeah, and so that ties in beautifully, like with some of the training we receive, uh, like the, the new model. I'm not going to say it's a new model, but it's a model that um, there are many, you know, physiotherapists in my community who are speaking to like a biopsychosocial model. And what they say in this model is like, guys, we're not saying that biology like doesn't play a role, you know, role because as body workers, sometimes we get stuck in that. The only thing that we do is manual therapy, that like all we do is touch and touch is the only you know, but there's like so many other aspects of working with the body, as you mentioned, like movement, um, you know, education, understanding like the belief system uh, in order to consider those pieces in how we're approaching the treatment of this whole person. And then the other thing I, I, I was thinking, And this kind of comes from like Thomas Hubel kind of, or his voices in my head here about also being influenced by life itself that wants to evolve and life itself that wants to like the whole like source of the universe. If you want to go like really existential, there's also that that is influencing and wants to evolve and grow. And we're part also of that process.
1: Yeah, I love that. I, I, one one route into that for me is that life inherently is curious. So um, uh, uh, Pangsep came up, um, he died, unfortunately, but he was uh, Yap Pangsep, I, I think his name was. He wrote some really great stuff around emotion, but he talked about seeking behavior and a fundamental of life is you can look at single cellular organisms that don't have a nervous system, but the ability to move. They move towards things they like and they move away from things they don't like. They contract. So this very at a very cellular level, there's we like and we dislike. We move towards, we move away. We have fear, let's call that, add in a complex human description of that moving away, contracting. But the opposite of fear. Is engagement, is seeking, is going beyond the horizon. Novelty is exciting, and I'm okay to explore. The world is available and has rewards within it if I can be curious and play. And that's a really lovely way, I think, of engaging this. What you were I can't remember the phrase you used, but this really larger notion that life is moving through us, but life is inherently about not being scared because if we were scared we wouldn't go beyond the rise and we wouldn't find that extra bit of, of deliciousness or novelty or, or stimulation. Yeah.
0: And then I think to myself, you know, how do we do that? Well, we need some sort of capacity to yet still have some level of like fear or physiology present when we're curious, but you know, how do we, you know, have capacity to be with that and then move beyond that into that curiosity. So there's, you know, I also think of like, how, how did people like, how did people sail past the, you know, past that line when they thought like the, you know, the world ends there, you know, like there must have been fear with that, but then what was that other part that despite the fear they stepped forward anyways? Right. So, mm. you know, sometimes I wonder, is that life itself being curious and demanding that like we as a species evolve or is that like an inherent internal i mean now we're getting philosophical on this and i'm sure there's not really an answer but it's something that i'm now like oh i'm curious about that like
1: yeah but 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 holding those debates but offering to people that fundamentally um we function better when we're inquisitive and we can be safe to explore now um and I, I like that, you know, this fundamental gesture is like life is hard. And sometimes we can feel that in the way that people gesture, how their bodies are constricted, how tight things are. They're just guarded. And the fundamental underlying gesture I touch, I interact with someone, my senses, gosh, they're basic fundamental places of withdrawal. How can I spark or reconnect them to this drive that I think is the opposite of playfulness, creativity, curiosity somehow? And it's like curious about movement, curious about, you know, that movement has been off limit for a long time. Somehow you got told not to bend your back, for example. Mm. And wow, gosh, there's so much fear about that. Can we be curious about can we play with movement and just bringing in, it seems like a meta level principle, but really playing in the face of limitations is how we can relearn. And if we make it playfulness rather than work and hard and it's always going to be a struggle, if we can bring that in, I think you're kind of more likely to get good results when we're playing with pain or playing with trauma. I don't say those things lightly. It's like marvel at like, you know, these are protective reflexes and they're really horrible and they're stuck, but they are trying to protect you. And somehow if we can keep exploring, keep being curious, we might find a way of reframing or moving slightly differently or constructing that differently or telling ourselves a different stories um, or finding communities that can help us make sense of that, all those things. It's, but yeah, the simple differentiation is play or fear is a nice thing to, to meet your clients through, I think.
0: Can I, uh, so I, I like what you're saying around that. And I'm curious about, like in the example of, you know, somebody who's injured their back has been told not to bend or has this fear around bending because maybe there is pain. I'm curious about how you may, how might you introduce play within the limitation? I'm just curious how like you would approach something like that.
1: Yeah, well, um, one thing is I kind of throw a pen onto the floor and say, can you pick it up for me? And, uh, you know, I'm trying to smile and look, but I'm looking, you know, uh, what's it like to do that playfully here? Yeah, I know your back hurts. I, I, I understand that. Please don't do something you don't want to do, but let's just see what you do. And, you know, some people are scared of anything. You can see they do the classic bad advice from the 80s, 90s of keeping your back straight. Um, and they're not scared of bending and I say okay well our homework is your homework is picking up your socks off the floor and you can straighten your back if you want to but I'm going to want you you have to pick up your socks with a bent back every so often that's your playful way of doing it. Um, For me I hope that's a playful way of beginning to approach doing ordinary little movements like The game we're going to play in movement is getting out the chair without pushing off the arms of the chair or pushing off your legs. Maybe you need to put a couple of cushions on the chair. You do that. But I'm trying to introduce some fun into some of the movements, really. David Butler is very good at this, um, the explain pain guy. Uh, He talks about, you know, someone can't do an arm movement. They're reaching up and reaching up, lifting the arm up is really difficult. So he says... Gosh, just imagine you're in a house, you're the only person, the light bulb's out, and you've got to reach up and just twist the light bulb, or you've twisted it the wrong way, and you're making a story out of it. Or he says, when you're strengthening the arm and doing some rotation and your shoulder kicks off and you don't twist your arm and straighten it, he says, you've got to turn it, you've got a knife, and you're going to stab the dragon and protecting your children. If you don't stab the dragon, then your children are going to suffer. So, oh, and the story and the playfulness because you wanna complete the story, you wanna stab the dragon, then you're gonna go through that little bit of irritation. And that playful narrative helps lead the gesture into positions that you wouldn't have done if you were a bit scared or didn't have a purpose to do it.
0: Oh, I, I, I like that example like of, of, of creating a story. And the other part that was uh, you know, striking for me was, okay, we're gonna play with getting up out of a chair and what I noticed was you didn't tell them how, right? So you, you it, it, and I was like, oh, that's like, that's really interesting because sometimes as therapists, body workers, we wanna, like the client wants us to tell them how to do it. We feel like, oh my gosh, I you know, I better give them some suggestions on how to do this. And what you just said was like, okay, here's the task. Let's like, let's, you know, I don't necessarily have an answer of how you're going to organize your body's movement, you know, to initiate this task. And so that allows for possible, like, I'm seeing that as, oh, there's a poss, there's so much possibility here. And we might say, we'll offer like an example, like, okay, well, let's put some cushions on, right? But then you kind of just leave it and... Um I kind of like that idea of okay let's let's thinking, sit in the unknown for a moment and see what emerges as a possibility for movement.
1: Yeah I think there's, there's a nice study on tennis players um where two cohorts some were taught how to where to stand how to how to swing a racket and you know we're giving very clear instructions from theory about how to move and what the best way to do it and some people were told they were supposed to do the equal amount of practice but some were told you just need to get it into that box on the other side of the net i don't care how you do it but your goal is getting the ball over the net into, the, into that next thing so both people who practiced both groups who practiced did well but the people who had the goal were unstructured but they had a whole variety of ways of achieving the same goal like so like someone like andre andre agassi was is very creative off-the-wall tennis player who could do things in all sorts of different ways. And he might have been someone who learned by the goal. You're just going to get it over the net. And I don't care how you do it, but just get it done. And he had lots of redundancy, lots of different ways of doing that. The people who'd practiced one way of doing it could do it the one way and did have good outcomes, but they had no variety or flexibility and they were a little bit... Um, less flexible or adaptable in this this model. Does that make sense? So just having a goal seems to be a really great way without telling people how to do it.
0: Mm. Yeah, I like that. I like that idea. So I want to change gears here a little bit and I want to talk a little bit about feeling states. So we kind of talked about body movement, body as a process, uh you know, connecting to to that, but where does feeling states come in in terms of like the body experiencing this feeling state?
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, there's a very nice model that we are a series of moments in our body, they're called interoceptive moments. So this is a Bud Craig model. And um, consciousness is rooted in this sense of, I have a body, so this is me, and then this is me. And this is me. So we string together these series of interoceptive moments. We compare them to our expectation and our history of a body. And hopefully there's not too big a gap. So if we're good at this, this is me, this is me, this is me, this is me, this is me. We have this constant stream. We have an accurate representation. And it's, uh, we're effective in the world because we're doing it quickly. Yeah? Actually, we have more time. Uh, we, we see things more precisely. We can absorb because we're getting this constant knowing. I feel I'm skillful at feeling. I'm getting quick, reliable information and I'm updating it regularly. This is me. This is me. This is me. This is me. Someone who's not very good at feeling, they can't differentiate out or it's just a bit of a blur and a mess. They're a bit dissociated or it's just really hard, so it's just a struggle. And if I'm painful, it's just stressful to feel, so I don't feel. They're going, this is me. This is me. This is me. It's about those moments when you're, you're driving and you lose loads of time. You can't remember the last half hour. You know something's been happening, but your consciousness has been elsewhere. So we actually lose time in those situations. We're less effective. We, because our feeling states are kind of hard work. We need to work a bit harder to make sense of them or we're just missing out huge chunks. Mm. We're less adaptable, less responsive, less efficient in the world. Is that, so that's feelings really important. Um, Feelings are driver of how the brain works and we need that information. If we can't feel, we can't control things. If we can't control things, we can't heal things. We can't make great decisions. So yeah, brains need bodies and they need that feedback. The argument here is that brains actually evolved to regulate feelings. They're deeply, deeply interested in protecting bodies and knowing what's going on and sensing information. That's the prime driver, am I safe or not? Am I safe in a world that's full of opportunities and dangers? And am I, do I have enough sugar to deal with this? Do I have, am I warm enough to do with this? Um, is my body regulated enough to be able to cope with the amount of stimulus? So if I can't differentiate feelings, I end up with very poor outcomes. Um, mm. Does that speak to what you were saying?
0: Yeah, I, it speaks to it very beautifully. And, and to simply add um, to, to that, I, I was um, listening to a conversation from an MIT business Uh, Professor Otto, and he was talking with Thomas Hubel about like in the business context and what they were talking about was absencing. And as leaders, we need to learn how we absence, how we disconnect and work on our absencing, and then to begin to notice absencing in others. And they talk about when we're absent Like in business, well, things are happening, and all of a sudden, we're going to get hit by things that are changing. And because we're absent, we're not picking up the cues, we're not sensing, we're not feeling that there's a change in the environment. And then we get hit by this like, where did this come from? Well, actually, the tsunami has been pulling out for quite some time, but we just haven't been present to. They also talked about if like our team and and co-workers are absent, that creates disconnection where information becomes distorted, right? Because it's like playing telephone, right? Where one person says something, by the time you get to the end, it's something completely different. Well, that creates friction and, and potential conflict because we're not actually present to what we are sensing, feeling, and hearing we're present to whatever happens to come up in our own selves when we kind of reconnect so it's like we're getting little pieces of information as you were saying like this is me silent break this is me so you have these like two strings of information you're like what the hell does this mean right and the just the ability to discern You know, and so one of the things that I've been really trying to work with with my clients is because, you know, I had a client come in yesterday, and all I wanted this client to do is practice breathing and sensing expansion and contraction with the breath in her belly. And she's like, I didn't feel a significant difference. I was like, hang on. Right. So sometimes when we create a goal, we we think of that goal in the like really far end piece, but we're not really present to like if you want to move the Titanic, you move it one degree and it continues to move that one degree. And I said, you know, is did you notice a 1% difference? Oh, I did. I tried your exercise laying down and then I decided to try it on the sofa and it was so much better. I go, aha there there's your intelligence your body's intel your all multiple levels of intelligence saying okay this is not working i'm gonna try it like this and you notice that it was better Nice, perfect let's play with that can we notice that one percent better rather than oh i want to be pain-free oh i'm still in pain because i get this so often but i'm still in pain okay
1: I love the commitment to teaching people one percent. I normally say ten percent, <laughs> but yes, the, the idea that it's subtle and it's hard, and you know, I kind of say your um, pain's a warning signal. Like nine out of 10, eight out of ten, can we spot the ones and twos and threes? So in that framework, the ten, the ten percent, but the one percent, the tiny little details are important. Let's um, let's practice that. Becoming good at the feeling business pays you in dividends, actually. And I just want to return to a word you use there of absence. So absence in a business community and a really nice riff on how that causes all sorts of problems. I think if we return to one of our defining questions, am I safe or not as a human being? And I like to teach that we have two fundamental responses to that question. I speed up to survive. Fight or flight is very common. We associate with that tension and speed and guts churning and all sorts of sometimes very obvious problems and very much in that stress paradigm of speeding and stress to survive. But the other big powerful response that isn't well enough known about is that we dissociate or we collapse or play dead to survive. So I speed up to survive, but equally the hidden response that most people don't know about is we dissociate, we play dead. We stop feeling as a survival gesture so that's why for me being trauma informed as a body worker is to really deeply understand that dissociation is real uh incredibly common and incredibly hard to spot so for example uh, working with pelvic pain for example there's all sorts of reasons why feeling pelvises is complex there's the whole all the constructs we have around sex you know for the joy to the pleasure to the horror to the fear to the messiness to whatever so that's all something to be negotiated then there's all the elimination that needs to be held Uh, so you know eliminative functions and then all these muscles and is it a pelvic floor is it a pelvic diaphragm is it too big is it too small so all these things we've got to negotiate all of that And so often, if that's been a place where there's been problems, one of the ways we survive is we might hold our pelvic floor really really tight. That's that speedy, spick. I'm going to guard myself, but we might just disappear from it and absent ourselves from feeling it. And then it becomes this sort of space in our awareness, and that's very, very hard to reconstruct. And that's when what you were saying is, Let's start with any clue of new feeling in this region is really gold dust. It's territory. It's like planting seeds. And we keep nurturing that very soon. We'll have a garden and all sorts of beautiful uh, things to harvest. But we need to plant the seeds. And sometimes that starts with just ones, 1%, 10% of a bit more feeling rather than your pain's gone. Well, you feel something slightly different. Let's let's start cultivating that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in- you know, I think to myself, like, that piece of, um, like, titration, right, like, and pendulation coming, especially in the dissociative states, because in the, so the absence and keeps us safe from feeling certain things. So when I have this overwhelming feeling in my body, I remember, uh, I can't remember who said it, but nonetheless, it could have been in my somatic training. Um, The state that we go in is the state that we come out. And so if we go too quickly back into the body, when we come in, we're going to be met oftentimes with a more stress response because it was the stress response that made us leave in the first place Yep. In, in some cases, right? So coming back in, there will be a sense of um, bodily sensations that may feel momentarily uncomfortable, kind of like when your leg falls asleep and you're like, "Oh, my leg just went numb."
1: And well, then, that's you a take, nice example.
0: Yeah, and then you take your, you know, you shift your leg, and all of a sudden, you know, life starts coming back into your leg. But you get the tingling and the prickling and the, and it's really uncomfortable, and you're like, "Oh my god, I can't move this." And then all of a sudden, that passes, and you're like, oh. There is my leg again
1: I love right. that really great <clears throat> really great example I love that i I, I also struggle with the all you know hyper aware of of we avoid feeling and we disappear because it's horrible or it's too much and we can't do it so to catapult people back into feeling um, it's hard work it's a discipline don't assume that. Uh, you know, a lot of the work I do, people think it's going to be relaxing. And yes, that's we'll, we'll get to that, hopefully, eventually, possibly. But on the way, it's work to feel. And what you might feel is you're suffering. You might feel lack and loss and hard things. So we'll do it slowly. And we'll try and start with things that feel safe or safe enough. and we A little bit more, but not too much. But yeah, catapulting people out of dissociation into the body too soon, too quick, it's just awful. And, just, you know, it's one of the kickbacks in, in meditation at the moment. Meditative awareness is great, really great. But, you know, there's some perils of meditation. And partly maybe is that too much feeling too soon is just overwhelms us and and uh, is really hard work. It needs to be slowly and skillfully. I really like your example of waking up a sleepy leg. It works really well, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think of, like, the autonomic ladder, right? We have to go from, like numbness to like that sympathetic and then work our way up to the uh ventral state right to that safety social engagement state so it, you know we have to go through the hard stuff and that's the part that you know makes it difficult that makes it hard for people yeah um
1: yeah gosh we have to go through the hard stuff yeah um imperatives and therapy always hard i think really i think something about um uh, we can help you negotiate the stuff. We can make you resilient. We can build your capacity. And when you're ready to, we can look at the difficult stuff if we want to. Sometimes we can actually just avoid it. We don't need to unpack it. We don't need to do this, but we can practice moving towards, moving away and regulating and acknowledge it might not be the time for that particular chewy, difficult, spicy meatball. Uh, and we'll, we'll come back to to that a little bit later it's just uh imper- you, you probably know this but imperatives and therapy are always hard you don't have to do anything let's let's um go slowly we can choose our time to meet that so it's not even though sometimes we do meet difficult things and there is work implied we can absolutely modulate that through pacing and creating choices and do that and i'm sure
0: and and, and this is kind of the part that's been really like helpful from, you know, um, sort of being in Thomas Hubel's um, uh, community because it, it kind of what we're saying here is we can recognize that there's something here and it's painful and can we be okay with the process that keeps me from feeling that difficult thing right now. So just being aware that we have a process that is keeping us safe. And so we don't have to go into that. We can just recognize, oh, I have this ball of stress here. I feel this tension in my stomach. Well, we don't need to unpack what all of that stress and tension is all about. We can say, oh, I'm feeling stress. Okay. You know, can we just soften a little around the edges of stress. We're not going into it. We're not trying to change it. You know, can we we soften around it a little bit in the sense of we have a process that's keeping that stress sort of distant and compact? And can we just be with how are we being in the process of self-protection? And because it's really important and it has also information to give us, like there's something to be learned in the process of our self-protection that maybe right now we're not going into it but we're learning we're starting to bring awareness to the body as a process an active process of engaging with whatever it is that is coming up for us in the present moment
1: and very nice to put yeah thank you uh, for me i might say that we don't need to know the content we don't need to know why this is here yeah. but just know there is something That is difficult. And like, when you talk about it, you speed up. Let's notice the response to speeding up and can we slow that down? Or when we meet that feeling, you go a bit dreamy and drifty. Maybe you're beginning to disappear a bit. Let's practice not doing that without, we don't need to know the content, just moving towards moving away. That titration, exploration, gesture, the curiosity, As I get curious about this difficult thing, you speed up or slow down. We're going to regulate the response. And then you find the thing that the content becomes less important, less less important. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm going to switch gears one more time toward touch. And I want to talk about how touch is influencing. So, in my, I'm, I'm currently in somatic experiencing training. I don't get to do the touch stuff until advanced. Uh, so I'm just, I'm curious, um, you know, about how t- how do you see touch influencing the body and the experience? And then like, are there different types of touch that you use? If you could speak sure. to that.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, oh. Some of our earliest learning experiences are preverbal. Clearly, they're preverbal. So we're we're sensitive in the uterus. We have this massive journey through the, uh, through the um, birth canal. And then we're received by our caregivers. All these journeys are journeys of pressure, touch, sensation, being squeezed, being soothed, being supported, being held in various different ways. So we have a nervous system that can be primed to go too quick. I came out kicking and screaming, I did all the work and that's what's the right way to being. I've learned, I've been primed by that journey of being squeezing, pushing my legs and then being soothed by touch. Uh, so I would offer that all our basic concepts of what the world is, what's too much, what's safe, um, how to get support, is all mediated through meeting a physical world that touches us and we touch the world It impresses itself upon us. And that's uh, a world of gravity and force and heaviness and light and sound, all these things that impressing upon us and all that's modulated through touch, not through words. We don't understand words at this stage, clearly. We understand sounds, but the gesture of touching is the priming in a very, very deep way of what safety is or isn't. So all our constructs that all language and thought is based on are already shaped by this journey of being touched, interacting with other human beings and our embodiment journeys. So I think that's very, very powerful for me. Um, So some nice studies around this. Kangaroo care is uh, babies that are preterm, live longer and healthier, and are more social at the age of 10 if they're just slung and skin to skin on the caregivers. So that's a really low cost and amazing intervention being rolled out around the world. But one of the things is they're more social at the age of 10. They can interact because they got touched. It's all sorts of brain processes and all sorts of health processes are ignited by that process of touch. But on the social level, we learn safety, interactions, what we want from another human being was all mediated through that skin to skin context. So I'm just arguing that touch is an important primer and learning. And I think that world of being shaped by sensation is always available and we can access that if we do skillful touch. But the touch has to be with this meta notion of creating safety. So there's some amazing research that backs this up and amazing physiology that backs that up because we have two touch systems, it turns out. We have slow touch and quick touch. Quick touch is proprioception, muscle joint spindles, a moving body in space. Great stuff. Please be good at proprioception. Let's not ditch proprioception. I want good proprioceptive, nice, nice input. It's great to have. But focusing on that led us down blind alleys of fixing things and the body as a machine and working in that way. We became isolated and, you know, I need to fix the muscle, the joint uh, or the spine to help someone. If we come back, one of the main researchers around this, um, I'm going to say Frank McGlone, uh, came up with this paper uh, 2014 on effective touch, he called it. And he discovered these band of receptors of C-fibers. So Mm. proprioception is A-fibers, quick, myelinated, uh, fast signals. They're the motorways of the nervous system. But McGlone says they're only 25% of how we feel things. The rest of it is country lanes and bicycle paths of the C-fibers. They're thin, unmyelinated. We have loads of them in the skin, and they are particularly, they fire, and adapt to social touch interaction with other humans, but particularly it's slow, gentle stimulation. But also the C fibres are the ones that collect all the juicy chemical states in our body, activity in cells, lot of vagal territory will be C fibre. So touching inwards, interior section, feeling the inner activity in the body, the slow background tone of the body, is deeply related to same nerves, same class of nerves, um, is processed with that slow touch from the outside. So now we have this wonderful mechanism of slow touch that's about safety, very early learning. It can trigger, if we're lucky and had good experiences, can reignite those deep qualities of safety that aren't actually verbal, that are just deep felt senses in our body. And that, because all that information is processed in, in very similar ways, C-fibers feeling the inside are same as, not differentiated from, processed in the same way as C-fibers from the outside, you know that you're having huge vagal boosts and huge uh, interoceptive moments from that slow touch. So I think that's just incredible. Touch is fundamental. It, it's pre-concepts, verbal concepts, but it's also categories that create what's safe, what's not safe. And we can access that through this new understanding that there's this whole class, 75% of the information we receive sensory information from the body is this slow background tone of the body, the itch, the hunger, the vibration, the warmth, the thirst, the delight of a slow caress is just as powerful, more powerful actually than sticking an elbow in or doing manipulative stuff.
0: Yeah. Um, there's a training and her name is, um, eluding my mind right now, but she, um, has a process of like, it's called dermoneuromodulation, which is, oh yeah, Diane Jacobs. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So that's, that's what's coming to my mind as you're speaking. It's like modulating the nervous system through the skin, through, through touch and it shows up in various, uh various ways and I would say that there is definitely this um I can sense this tension uh, and certainly this tension within me um probably because of my training as a physiotherapist in a you know very structured university setting uh, that is, you know, centered around, okay, learn how to diet, like learn how to assess, learn how to diagnose, find the tissue, fix the tissue. And so I feel this great tension within me uh, around, you know, fixing, but also like knowing this other process. And then, you know, because let's say clients have this, may, may have some beliefs or preconceived notions about what body work is, and they sort of come in with this expectation of, are you going to fix me? I hope you're going to fix me. Like I'm here for you to fix me. And so it's like this dance between, you know, I know touch is really important and I want to do it slow and gentle, but are they, how are they going to receive that and understand its importance? And then it's like, are they going to be happy with the, tree? <laughs> you know, yeah, the tree,
1: no, right? it's a huge challenge. Yeah, but, Um, probably, um Yeah, here's one route in maybe. So if we go back to backs and safety and and being stiff. So there's a a researcher in Australia, Tasha Stanton, did a paper on um, uh, stiffness is a perceptual construct. So uh, she got people to bend and the horrible signal of stretching and the fear around that was the thing that made them stiff. And I think, I can't remember, she tricked them somehow and, you know, gave them another narrative, a story, you need to complete this. And when they felt safe, and they weren't paying too much attention to the back, they could bend much more. So her conclusion of this paper, a rigorous paper, is that stiffness, the biggest determinant of stiffness, is feeling safe, or not feeling safe, is fear. So then we return is that, If your touch is directed at trying to increase the capacity of the tissues, the capacity of the tissues is already there. It's not the tissue limitation that's causing the stiffness. So if all you're doing is manipulating the joints and stretching the tissues and think that you're doing a great job, you're not really. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to have much that, you know, the evidence doesn't really seem to point. That's the mechanism that's working. But if you're using slow touch, so when they're bending over, let's say you put a soft, still hand on their back, you're encouraging, you're saying this isn't dangerous or are you sure maybe you can go a little bit further in the warmth of your hand and the slowness, you're accessing that whole world. You're still using touch, but your touch isn't to fix the tissues. The touch is this reassuring gesture that's helping them feel safe and putting an extra warmth in as they bend and move. And you might do this when you're helping people move, you know, you've got these soft, generous hands and instead of lifting a hip up just to rotate it and try and stretch the whatever piriformis in a weird position, you're just lifting it up and helping them feel it and your warm hands and the slowness helps them feel safe with this thing that feels they've been told it's arthritic and it shouldn't do this or whatever. you'll say, well, look, we can do this and play and do it gently. But the slowness, the gentleness and the intention to create safety is a really powerful effect that we should be teaching our physios. I trained as a chiropractor. I didn't get taught any of this stuff in chiropractic. I really think there's a real place for that type of touch. And we can do it very skillfully and know that we're fixing things, but it's going up to the big brain, creating safety, reducing the fear, and then the stiffness goes, which is what we want to do ultimately. So how does that sound?
0: Yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, you, you know, I have clients. you know, I'm thinking about clients and you release a tissue and they're like, I felt so great after, uh, you know, the treatment, but I got home a couple hours later, same tightness. Right. And, and so I try to, you know, and then it's like, I try to explain, you know, we need to do something different here because me just releasing the tissue is, the tissue is not the problem, right? It's, being modulated through the nervous system, something is creating the tension that's making it difficult for that muscle to function in the way that it needs to function. Yeah. And, you know, if something's tight and compressing, and you're not getting enough blood flow to the muscle, that muscle is going to get pretty cranky really yeah. quickly, right? It's not, a def- it's not a defect of the muscle. It's you know, the fat, maybe the fascial system, maybe the constriction in the blood vessels. Well, that's all modulated by the autonomic nervous system. And so if we can, and same thing with like um, fascia, right? So fascia is not something that I necessarily have this like direct communication with. It's linked up with our autonomic nervous system.
1: Very good. Here's how I might say that, you know, uh... I did all sorts of things, yoga, chiropractic, shatsu, massage, loved all of them and got things out of them. But uh, ultimately, if someone's shoulders contracted up and they're, you know, in this hunched position and I can stretch that, I can manipulate it, I can stick my elbow in, I can find the, the trigger points, all those sorts of things. And I tried all of that stuff. Mm. But if their threat to action systems that are life and death are in the habit of saying, if you, release that shoulder, you might die. Then until you address that, then they're always going to contract the shoulder. That's the message we need to go. It needs to be safe for that shoulder to go into that position. Now you can do that in the by the back door by, you know, if you're lucky with the manipulation, but if you put too many strong forces in, you're actually just going to maybe put too much speed in and they'll actually double down on the contraction after that, that input. So yeah, when I learned that one, the message is life and death. If those threat detection systems have got activated and if they've decided I'm either going to keep that contracted or I'm just going to ignore that shoulder, until you address that level of it's safe to engage and safe to feel, then you can manipulate it all you want or stretch it all you want, but it, it just it's not going to happen. and You waste a lot of energy. I wasted a lot of energy uh, trying to do those things, trying to get fancier and fancier techniques to create the local release where it was actually a global problem, where safety was the key thing. And it's so much more rewarding and there's so much more tools that we can have. So in this biopsychosocial framework, it's complex narrative and meaning and hearing rich, complex stories and being able to say, yeah, you're not getting, you know, there's a fear of getting old or you not being able to play tennis means you are a little bit whatever you, you know there's a difference and and, and 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 all of that the beautiful complexity and weaving stories in I've learned to embrace that and be happy with that I don't frame myself as a psychologist I frame my pal- stories that people tell themselves around their body are deeply um, important to how we control our body so they need to be acknowledged and heard and and are uh, always part of the process of pain Actually,
0: yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there certainly could be a fear in practitioners to, you know, create a little more space for the practice. You know, uh, certainly we get fear around like scope and it's like we, we don't want to go there and, you know, because we're also scope, not scope. a scope of practice. yeah. Yeah. Scope of practice might be a fear of individuals. And again, I think what's beautiful about working with the nervous system is that I don't need to know the content. I just need to understand the context and then understanding the context is rooted in the nervous system and in the body. Then that's totally within my realm you know, of practice. And I think what you were saying, you know, to be trauma informed, I think is really important and probably needed more than anything in this world right now is if we all had a little more trauma informed, you know, reconnecting the mind back to the body and understanding that there's so many different things. It's just like everything feels very fragmented in the way that we approach health. And so it's hard to get things to, you know, move, move together. And I think understanding physiology and and and
1: yeah. you know very much like the bodies are hard, but bodies are beautiful. Bodies aren't a given, they're work and they need practice. Some experiences absent us from our body, we end up disconnected. That hidden response is once you start including it and understanding, you know, fight and flight and the stress response is amazing, get really good at that. But there's not enough teaching in bodywork circles around dissociation and understanding of just how powerful it is. So, those hidden bits, the things I can't feel, just helping people have little bits and training people. The good news is about it, it is all trainable. Yeah. Uh, these sort of slow movements, slow touch, being playful all can generate new sensations. And then we can find new words for new sensations. And now we've got so much more choices and creativity about how we can be. And we we can play with these things and make a real difference, actually.
0: Yeah, because the world gets a little bigger, right? The space inside of us gets a little bit bigger. And certainly when clients experience being with what is present in relation not necessarily alone, but in a held container and a held container of safety. And all of a sudden, once they sort of move through a little bit of a process, they're like, I feel like there's, I just feel bigger. There's something more spacious. And when it's more spacious and there's more possibility, you know, life becomes a little bit brighter. Versus like, these are my only options. And like, I'm doomed to only experience these things for the rest of my life. And that in and of itself can be quite scary. So if we can create a realm of openness, curiosity, there's an opportunity for learning something different. There's an opportunity for increasing our perspective and our experience while we're here on this planet.
1: Gotta love that. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Nice.
0: So Steve, this has been an absolutely wonderful discussion and unexpected where went, but I think we covered things that we wanted to cover here. Um, I'm curious about, you know, where can people find you? Where can they follow you if they're interested in, you know, what you're up to or working with you? I don't even know where in the world you are.
1: Yeah, uh, London is home, a little bit of Geneva, but also London ultimately. So uh, bodycollege.net is where you can get all my stuff. Uh, I write some comic books. So I've done four comic books. Pain is really strange. Trauma is really strange. Touch is really strange. And anxiety is really strange. There are like, uh, there are only 32 pages. There's a whole bunch of stuff in them. Uh, And, you know, check them out. They're kind of available in bookstores and uh, online and stuff. So the really strange series, you might want to have a look at. Uh, Yeah. Comic books about trauma. Who knew? And uh, yeah, it's gone really well and I'm really proud of them and the, There's a nice combination of art and uh, references uh, at the bottom of them. Um, Yeah, courses, online courses. I do the shaking thing, TRE. So if you're interested in learning to shake as a way of feeling your body, tension, trauma, releasing exercises is a nice model. And I teach two-year cranial courses, but that's London and Dublin. So quite specific, not, uh, but yeah, that's me. Bodycollege.net is where you can find me or or at haynes 66 on Twitter. And what's the other one? Instagram. You can Wonder- tell I don't do that much. But yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, what we'll do is uh, we'll put the links uh, in the show notes for people to easily access and then uh, find it, find you easier. So that will be in the podcast description for anybody who's looking for it.
1: Unfortunately, Steve Haynes is is a star of Grand Feth Auto. So if you search my name, you'll get to uh, on a gaming platform okay
0: yeah so there you go Don't so do that just, just just check the links in the in the description so you find the right Steve Haynes and uh, get to the right information Steve I want to thank you so much for your time what a fabulous discussion and I just feel in gratitude that uh, we had this opportunity to connect
1: yeah it was a riot it was fun thank you very much
0: Yeah. And thanks to all of our listeners for joining in. Be sure to share this podcast out because I think it just has such amazing, wonderful gems that anybody could take something from this conversation. So be sure to share the podcast out and we'll connect with everybody next time. Bye for now.